0: go ahead and open up to the confession of faith chapter 8 tonight will be in paragraphs four and five if you don't have a Bible or a hymnal with the confession in it now is the time this is on page 1313 uh, if you're using the the youth group Bible. 1,313. Alright, so tonight marks about halfway through uh, what's been a relatively deep dive on chapter 8 of the Confession of Faith. Uh, and as you know by now, this chapter is is about Christ the Mediator. Uh, and we're going, especially, th- especially slowly through this chapter, we will pick up the pace uh, in, in the coming chapters, but this one... Uh, we're taking our time with because it's one of those doctrines um, that you can't afford to get wrong. Uh, there's 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 no truth of God's word that it's good to get wrong. But this one is one that you can't do without. Uh, there are many chapters in the confession uh, that there are many Christians who think differently about them than we do. Many Christians have different views of creation than what we teach here, and we think. That they are incorrect, but they're not going to miss out on heaven because of that. Many Christians think differently about free will than we do. Uh, who here goes to school with somebody that has a different idea of free will than we do? Yeah, everyone that goes to Bob Jones Academy should be raising their hand. Um, and many other others of you have had questions about how to defend. The reformed view of these things, and and we, I, you know, of course, I believe that we are right. If I didn't think we were right, I would be somewhere else. <laughs> but no one's going to miss out on heaven because they have a different view of free will than we do. Uh, the good news is that you know, while while Christians uh, of different stripes have different views about lots of things, they have different views than us about the law of God have different views than us about covenant theology. They have different views about the sacraments, the the role of church government, the Sabbath, all these things. The good news is, as I've said, no one misses out on heaven by being wrong on those issues. And the even better news is, when they get there, they'll see that we were right all along. (laughs) But, the line in the sand that does determine and that we want to have as straight as possible, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of those other matters are important and worth our time, and we will spend time on them, but this is the most important, and it is worth the most of our time. Uh, There have always been a lot of different ideas about who Jesus is, even in his own time. Would somebody please read for us Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 17. Yeah, sixteen, thirteen to 17. Yes, Jack. 13 through 17? Yep. Peter confesses Jesus as the cross. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Thank you, Jack. And so there's there's lots of different ideas, even when Jesus is around and doing his ministry, lots of different answers to the question, who do people say that I am? And, and the answer that he embraces it's when Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. He says, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is the correct answer. There are lots of answers, but that is the correct one. And it's a very important one to get right. Uh, somebody else, please read for us John chapter 8 and verse 24. John eight twenty-four. 24. Okay. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Pretty significant statement. Unless you believe that I am he, uh, and what's, what's significant there also is the he is supplied in the English. In the Greek it literally just says, unless you believe that I am. Meaning, unless you believe that I am God. Unless you believe that I am the God who revealed himself to Moses and Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. Unless you believe that I am him. You will die in your sins. That's a significant and important statement. And this is the way the church has always understood the importance of this doctrine. Um, The Athanasian Creed, uh, if you want to look on with this with me, if you have uh, the the Youth Group Bible, it's page 1241. But I'll just read it, and you can look at this up later. But it says, this is a creed that we don't usually confess in our worship services, not because we don't believe it. It's in our hymnal. We believe this. It's just... Long, but I'm going to read this for us. It says, It is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now, this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is man of the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh. And it goes on and concludes, this is the Catholic faith. I mean, this is the universal faith of Christianity. That one cannot be saved without believing. This is why we're spending so much time on this. We're spending about two months on this chapter because it's essential. Now, I want to back off on that just a little bit and be clear. I'm not saying that unless you can formulate the deity of Christ exactly the way the, the, the Athanasian Creed or the Apostles Creed or whatever else does, you're, you're not getting into heaven. I'm not saying there's a theology test uh, to get in. But what I am saying is that having the right, uh, you, you cannot willfully, knowingly reject the truth. And get in. There's a huge and vast difference between not being fully aware of something and ardently rejecting it. And, and the difference between what we would say are our Christian religions and other religions, even if they claim to have Jesus somewhere in the title, is who do they say that he is? Who do they say that he is? Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe in Jesus, but they believe that he is a created being who is not fully God. Mormons say that they believe in Jesus but they believe that he is Lucifer's spirit brother um, and, and several other strange things that, that don't comport with this doctrine. And maybe maybe an illustration would be helpful here. All right, the, uh, the, the the dividing line about whether or not we go to glory is do you know Jesus? And having right theology about him is a way of making sure. So think about it this way. If uh, somebody, maybe you meet a group of people, you're out and you're talking with them, and they, they say they're they're Christians, and they say, uh, "What church do you go to?" And you say, "I go to Second Presbyterian Church." And they say, "Who's who's your who's your pastor there?" And you say, "His name's Jeff Early." And they say, "Oh, I know Jeff Early. He's so cool." Instantly, you have reason to believe they don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> but that in and of itself doesn't seal the deal. So you ask some probing questions. You ask them, you know, "Well, well what do you think of Mrs. Early? What do you think of Brooke and James and Lynn?" And they say, I didn't know he was married. That's a big red flag, right? It's possible they know me. It's possible maybe I preached at their church and I didn't bring my family and they didn't see the wedding ring and maybe they didn't know I was married. But another person says definitively, he is not married and has no children. You know that person doesn't know me. Does that make sense? You guys see the distinction there? It's one thing to be ignorant of some facts. But it's another thing to, to... Deliberately reject them. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. And so my goal here tonight, by going over these things, is twofold. One, um, I, I want you to be protected against other faiths that would claim to know Jesus, that would claim to serve Jesus, but are actually a lie. I want you to know the truth of what God says about him in the Bible. And the second thing is that for those of you that do know Jesus, and I suspect that's the majority of people in the room, that you would know him better, that you would know more of who he is and care more deeply about those things. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been in this material, so I'm going to do a little bit of a review here. Um, And when I first presented this material a couple years ago, I I did so under the grid of what's called uh, the grammar of Christology. Christology which sounds scary and intimidating, but it's really a simplified way, and it's as easy as counting to four. So I think uh, we can handle it here. The grammar of Christology works something like this. There is one person that's the eternal Son of God. There's one person of Jesus Christ, and that one person has two natures. What are they? God and man. Truly God, truly man. 100% God, 100% man. And this th- this person with these two natures has executed three... Who wants to take a guess? Jack? Offices. Offices. What are they? <laughs> and he has done so as our mediator across four, what we'll call for simplicity's sake, moments. And this is the one we're going to talk about tonight. But just a little bit of, um, now we got to get right into the moments. Um, I can talk more about the other ones uh, later, but we have covered them before. It's just important to know one person with the two natures. And therefore, we're going to talk about some things in the Bible. You'll find some things in the Bible that will refer to Jesus, but would not be appropriate to say of deity, such as he bought the church with his own blood. God doesn't have blood, right? God does not have a body like a man, right? Children's catechism stuff. But as to his humanity, he did. Or we will read of things um, that, uh, you know, Jesus uh, Jesus calls himself I Am. <coughs> it's the name of Yahweh. It's not super-duper appropriate for a man to take upon himself the name of God, but as to his deity, it's completely appropriate. Does that make sense? So we, we have to keep in in mind those two grids, um, and also that these two natures they never mix. they't don't, They don't get tied up with one another. the The human nature is not deified, and the de the, 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 the God nature is not lowered down. He is truly God, truly man, and, and those two natures don't mix. and we'll talk more about why that's important at another time, but for right now, I'll give you the the four moments that we're going to talk about tonight. And I'll read them straight out of the Confession, and I'll note them as they come up. So this is Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 8, Paragraph 4. The, this office, speaking of the office of a mediator, which is subsumed over all three of these specific ones, Prophet, Priest, and King, this office of mediator the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, And that was was something that many of you brought out in the homework assignment that I gave you, that that was important to you, that he did this because he wanted to. And amen to that. This is something that Jesus wasn't forced into purchasing your salvation. He desired to. He most willingly did undertake, which that he may discharge, he was made under the law. That's the first of the four moments. That's the incarnation that's him taking to himself a human body and a human soul he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body was crucified that's the second moment that was that was significant that was important for our salvation. So you've got the incarnation, the crucifixion. He was crucified. He died, was buried. Many of you noted that that's echoing the Apostles' Creed dead on. That's exactly what they're doing here. And he remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. There were some questions about what that phrase means. What it means is he didn't stay dead. His body didn't Decompose, as it were. He saw no corruption in that sense. Because on the third day, he rose again from the dead. This is the third moment. He resurrected. He rose again from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. We'll talk about that later. With which he also ascended into heaven. This is the fourth key moment. And there sitteth at the right hand of his Father making intercession and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. So what we're going to do tonight is review each four of those moments in order and why they were necessary things for Jesus to do as our mediator. Uh, That they were essential for our salvation. And then from there, time permitting, we'll look at paragraph five and look at what it was that he purchased for us uh, in this office. First of all, though, the incarnation. Uh, we will do a, a proper full-length lesson on this closer to Christmas time because that's what you do. Uh, it's, that's a helpful time to think about and reflect on these things. Uh, but for right now, for the sake of time, um, we'll just look at a couple aspects of this. You know, you, you all know the Christmas story well, right? Angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, uh, "You you will you will conceive a child," and she says, "How will this be, seeing as I know not a man?" He says the, the spirit of the most high will overshadow you and the child should be called wonderful and great and all, all these things. The point that I want to that I want to make, want to drive in here and what I want to ask you guys about. Why the virgin birth? Why the incarnation? Why are those things not just nice stories that we remember at Christmas time, but why are they essential for our salvation? Why is it necessary for it to have happened this way? It could not have been another way. Any other way, he wouldn't have been like perfect, and he could like this. Gold right on the money. It was necessary for our mediator to be human, to be fully and perfectly human. Why? Because he's going to be our representative. Right, we can't have somebody that's not the same as us representing us. You know, I, I've used this analogy before, uh, but it's, it's it's worthwhile. You know, uh, let's say that that um, let's say Josiah is in the championship game for for basketball and he gets an injury and he says, "Don't worry, guys, I found a sub. His name's LeBron James." Is anyone going to accept that? Is that a fair trade? <laughs> Is that pretty <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much LeBron's it's not LeBron. good? Not not quite as good, that's it's a downgrade. Fair. It's not fair. Okay, jokes aside though, you see the point. We need to have a, a, a representative that is the same as us. We need to have one that is fully human. Human in every way. The author of Hebrew says he was made like us in every way, yet without sin. And that gets to that gets to the second part of, of Opal's answer, is that he had to be conceived supernaturally by the power of God, because since the fall in the garden, all that man can produce is tainted with sin, and that includes offspring. And so he had to be fully man, that's why there needed to be a, a, a birth, as it were, but he had to be... Divine and spared of the mark of original sin, so that he could be our perfect representative. And and this is this is what the confession talks about in paragraph two, where it speaks of uh, the the um that the the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. He was made man of the substance of Mary, but he was also fully God of the essence of his father. He had to be, uh, it had to be this way so that he could be our perfect representative. Uh, Questions on that before we go on to the next big moment that's laid out for us in the confession. All right, y'all know how to get me later. Um, the crucifixion. the confession of faith is is really, really precise here and it's it's really, really helpful uh, because when you are asked the question and, and I sit in session interviews where this question is asked a lot, what did Jesus do to give you the hope of eternal life? And the the, the, the default instinct answer, or ninety-five percent of Christians is he died on the cross for my sins. Is that true? Yes, absolutely, it's true. Is that the whole truth? No, he did more than that. The confession is helpful here because it says uh, in in chapter four, uh, chapter eight, paragraph four that uh, he, he was made under the law, that he might discharge it perfectly, that he might fulfill it entirely. That is to say that Jesus had to live a human life of complete righteousness so that he could turn around and give that to you. He died on the cross to pay for your sins, but he lived the perfect life that we were required to live, that he might credit that righteousness to our account. This is another illustration I've used before with you guys, but think about it uh, in in accounting terms. Um, God requires perfect, one hundred percent righteousness, one hundred percent holiness. That's the that's the deal. That's the requirement. And you and I are not in the middle. We're not even at zero. We are 100% unrighteous. What the crucifixion does is it pays for our sin debt to God. And that brings us up to zero. Is that enough? No. So thank God, praise the Lord for the crucifixion. Couldn't get to heaven without it. Couldn't have hope of eternal life without it. Absolutely essential. But what is also absolutely essential is What theologians call the the active obedience of Christ, that he obeyed the law positively. So when we say that he was without sin in every way, what we mean is not only did Jesus never tell a lie, but that he always told the truth. And he always told the truth in love. You all know that it's very possible to tell the truth in a way that's designed to tear somebody down and hurt their feelings, right? This has happened to you. It's happened to me. If it hasn't to you yet, it will. Jesus always spoke the truth in love. He always did the right thing the right way so that he might credit that to you. Uh, One of the key verses to to see this in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. I give you guys ones that would be good for memorizing every now and then this is the best one to memorize for our sake he god the father made him jesus christ who knew no sin to be sin it's dying on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of god that's our sin credited to him and his righteousness credited to us and that, that happens during his earthly life uh, and is capped off as it were with the crucifixion questions on that very very important point before we move on to the resurrection and the ascension Nate. I missed what verse was that? Second Corinthians 5 21 alright others? The resurrection, uh, Jesus took our sin debt on himself, He paid it in full, and, and because he had no guilt of his own, death was not able to hold him. He was raised from the dead. This is, this is a, a big point that Peter makes in his sermon in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Death had no power over him. This is what it means by he saw no corruption. He, he could not stay dead, but rather he rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he rose from the dead in the very same body on which he hung on the cross. I got a lot of questions about this. And we'll probably end it here for the sake of time because I want to take time to to explain this well. The significance of that is huge. One day in glory at the day of resurrection you will see the very wounds by which your salvation was purchased. That is a powerful thing. You will, you will see what he went through for you. You will see how, how precious you are to him, what he endured, so that you could inherit eternal life. And, and we see this in several places in the Bible, the most famous of which is, of course, John chapter 20 with Thomas. Thomas. He says, unless I can put my finger in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus appears and says, there it is. Go ahead. And then also in other resurrection appearances, I think it's the next chapter of John, Jesus eats with them. And the theological significance is he has a physical body still. Spirits don't eat. He actually ate with them. He has a resurrected body. And, and the, the, the encouraging thing is that as he has a resurrected body, so will you one day. Every, every imperfection, every frustration that you have with your body, one day you will have a perfect body, a resurrected body. That which is sown perishable will be raised imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Now, what exactly does that mean, and what exactly does that look like? I don't know. The Bible does not plainly tell us that. And I suspect that even if we did, if it did, we wouldn't have the full capacity to understand, because what it does mean is we will have a body that is no longer in any way under the influence of the fall. No longer in any way under the influence of the curse, because the curse will be taken away. You won't get fatigued. Get injured. You won't get uh, any other of, of the ailments that come with our physical body, and we just don't have a we don't have a category for that. It would be like it would be like a blind man trying to describe to you the sunset. Like I can tell you what the Bible says, because in the same way that a blind man can say, "Well, there's tints of orange and purple and whatever," but he doesn't know what it means because he hasn't seen it. I don't know exactly what all it means because I've only ever lived on this side of the fall. Does that make sense? We have, but we know that it will be perfect. We know that it will be far better than what we have now. And so we, we look forward to that and we're assured that it's true because he raised from the dead in the very same body in which he was crucified. Well, we will pause there and we'll pick this up next week. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, We give thanks to you for our precious Lord Jesus, our mediator, our prophet, priest, and king, our great Savior. And we thank you, Lord, that he has done everything that is necessary for our salvation. And I pray that for the sake of my young friends, that they would grow in their knowledge of him, not just in terms of facts, but that they would grow in their personal relationship with him and grow to know the hope that is ours, at the day of resurrection. I pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.